If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. I wasn't entirely surprised that there was a curb. I was staggered the first time I saw the skeleton being revealed. Either or both of those were fatal, and it's likely that the the fatal blow was the big slice at the back of the head. We can't be absolutely sure which one came first, but it's one of those two blows that's fatal. That was Phil Stone and Lynn Foxhall reacting to the announcement that Richard III's body has been discovered. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast with me, Rob Attar. This week we've put together a special edition about Richard III following the exciting news on Monday that the body discovered in a Leicestershire car park was indeed that of the controversial king. And today I'm joined by my colleague Matt Elton, who has been following the story with interest. Hello. So Matt, for those who've been on another planet this past week, can you give us a quick recap of what happened on Monday? So yes, with much fanfare on Monday, the University of Leicester announced that the remains found beneath a car park in the city are in fact those of Richard III. Um, the DNA testing proving that there are links with uh, descendants of his family. And there's also circumstantial evidence too, wasn't there, that they pointed to? Yes, there's been previously announced a lot of artefacts um, which have been found and the position of the skeleton is also believed to show that it is the king. Great, OK. And you've had a chance to speak to a couple of people who've been closely associated with the events that have been unfolding. And first up is Lynn Foxhall. So who's she and how did she become involved? Yes, so she is currently head of the School of Archaeology and Asian History at Leicester. Um, and she uh, took up that position during the time this project was going on. Um, so she's been following it quite closely and has been to see the dig site on a couple of occasions. Sounds great. So let's listen to what she had to say. What first led to the project being started at that site? The project has quite a complicated history. The, the inspiration for the project and actually undertaking it now really did come from Philippa Langley of the Richard III Society, who was following up 
knowledge that has been around for a long time that Richard III had been buried at the friary church of the, the, the Grey Friars in Leicester after the Battle of Bosworth. And that we knew approximately where that was, but it was she who persuaded the university and the Richard III Society that it was worth funding an excavation. Now, in my department, we have a professional archaeological unit, University of Leicester Archaeological Service, and Richard Buckley is one of the co-directors. Richard, of course, has terrific expertise, 30 years' experience of excavating and studying urban Leicester. So, of course, he knows the archaeology of Leicester incredibly well. And so that's why our department became involved in the project. Now, for us, because we never thought we would find Richard III at the start, the really exciting aspect of this project was the idea that we were going to find a new and previously unexplored medieval church in Leicester. And that was the real attraction and the thrill for us. I see. OK. Um, so you were involved in the project at the point that the skeleton was first discovered. Is that right? Sort of. I mean, I was involved in the project in the sense that, of course, as head of department, I, I knew what, as, as the boss, basically, I knew what... Um, I knew what the unit was doing and I knew what Richard was doing and I was keeping an eye on it and visiting the site. And as I say, we were really excited about the prospect of finding a new medieval church in Leicester. I mean, the Greyfriars were there from the, the, um, the 1200s and we know that these urban friaries played a major part in the life of the city and so it was a great opportunity to find out more about medieval Leicester. We knew the approximate location of the priory, the friary, because of old maps. We had um, 17th and 18th century maps that showed us the general area of the city and we overlaid them on the modern ordnance survey maps to zoom in on the the location. What we didn't know was the layout of the buildings and, and how the, the friary itself was set up. So really from August, I was involved in the project in the sense of being head of department and of course very interested in it because it's, it's a very important institution in the history of the city. Now archaeologists very rarely dig up known individuals and even less rarely do we dig up famous known individuals. And we certainly don't usually go out and look for them. As you know very well, most of the people that we're studying are people who are anonymous. They're just the ordinary people of the past. And although we can tell a lot about their activities, their lives, their subsistence, the things they did, even their bodies in many cases, and health and diet and other things, usually we don't know who they are. And that's one of the things that's made this investigation so unusual for archaeologists. I mean, that brings me on to my next point, really, is there's been so much focus about the king, understandably. Are there any discoveries that you've made on the site that you think have been overlooked in all of this? I wouldn't say overlooked. Um, certainly, the archaeological context of the church itself and the position of the grave and the kind of grave it is, is absolutely critical evidence for the identification of the skeleton we have as Richard III. So, for example, the fact that the grave is not a very beautiful grave, it looks like it was very hastily dug, it, it, it's a little bit too short for him, which is why his head was in kind of a funny position. And it, it's possible that his hands may have still have been tied when he was put in the grave. So again, that's, that's again, not what you expect in a medieval um, grave in a church. We'd love to know more about the church itself and its history. And I hope that we'll have a chance now because of this spectacular find to do some more investigation on that church. After all, Richard III is an episode in the life of the church that's very late in its history. OK. Um, and turning back to the skeleton, obviously, I mean, there's a couple of, kind of issues related to it that I'm not sure about. For instance, what happened to its feet? Do we know? 
No, absolutely no idea. Now, remember, we're in the middle of a city. And the thing about cities is that people live in them for a long time. And they're always building on top of whatever was there before. So urban archaeology is often very, very complicated. Now, this particular bit of the city, which is pretty much right in the middle, has been occupied since before Roman times, right up to the present. And to be honest, it's actually kind of a miracle that that grave ever survived in the first place. As you saw, if you've seen photos, it's not terribly deep below the surface. And the grave itself is, is in, a, in a car park, which is surrounded by later um, Georgian, Victorian, and modern buildings. So it's a miracle that nothing was actually built on top of it or destroyed it in the building. In fact, almost adjacent to the grave itself. Um, in the earlier 20th century, there was a garage there, and we still have the bits where the, the, um, the pits where you would go down and look underneath the cars were dug out. And they missed the grave. Can you believe it? How um, astonishing is that? So the area where, where the, the grave actually was, of course, in the medieval period, it was in the choir of the church. But in later times, there were houses there. There were Victorian houses. There were outbuildings. In fact, there was a bunch of Victorian loos very close to the... To the um, very close to the, the site of the grave. And, of course, even before that, it was the Herrick family's garden. So the most likely thing is that either the Victorian loos or Herrick's gardeners came across the feet. And, of course, foot bones are not very big. When your flesh all decays, you have, you know, little carpals and metacarpals and so forth. And, and toe bones and things like that. They're very small. So somebody clearly went through them in the course of gardening or building works in a later period. And that's, we're pretty sure, when they disappeared. What's weird about it, though, is that there's no sign of particular disturbance in the grave. But it's absolutely certain that they disappeared long after the body had been buried. So it's not as if somebody cut off his feet when before he was buried. That's Definitely not the case, and we can tell that from the bones. Okay, fantastic. Um, so what can we learn about Rich's death from the skeleton? An awful lot of things we can learn, not only about his death, but also about his life, his lifestyle, and the circumstances of his burial. About his death, the best evidence, of course, are all those, um, all that evidence of, of war wounds and, and battle trauma. And it looks like there were two key injuries to his head, one from a big bladed weapon like a halberd. We're not absolutely certain it's a halberd yet, but, but we're trying to pin it down. And another from something like a dagger that went through the front of his face and right back into the back of his head. Um, either or both of those were fatal, and it's likely that the the fatal blow was the big slice at the back of the head. We can't be absolutely sure which one came first, but it's one of those two blows that's fatal. Now, probably after his death, the, the osteological evidence is, is for perimortem injuries. That is to say, injuries close to the time of death. And the, the scientific evidence won't tell us whether they're before or after. But the nature of the injuries and the what we know from historical sources about what happened to Richard's body suggests that many of the blows on the body were inflicted very shortly after he died rather than before. But we can't be 100% certain of that. There are various blows to the skull, but they all avoid his face. Now, this is a, a, a significant contrast to other battle casualties in the late medieval period in the in the 15th century. So, for example, Joe, our osteoarchaeologist, looked at the Towton burials from a little bit earlier in the in the 15th century. And there, lots of the faces were really significantly disfigured um, in a way that, of course, has happened, we've seen happen in more recent conflict zones in our own world, in modern times. It's, it's a horrible thing 
thing, of course. It's a dreadful thing to do to people. And it's one of those terrible lessons of history that we haven't quite learned yet. But with Richard, they definitely did not disfigure his face. It was, all the blows were round the back of his head, the one to his ribs, and, of course, the dagger that somebody was aiming to put up his bottom. Now, that's really, really extraordinary insult, humiliation injuries. And yet they wanted to make sure he was identifiable because, of course, if you were the new king, you wanted to make sure that everybody knew the old king was dead. Um, there's been some debate this week since the discovery about the historical significance of the find. What do you think that it is? Um, some of the commentators about who, some of the people who've been been fussing about the historical significance ought to know better, really. I mean, we've just, we've just revealed an entire new body of material cultural evidence in a period where we don't have very many texts and where the texts that we have are very, very highly charged, politically charged. We're looking at a moment in history where it's a regime change. So think, for example, not very far back to the Libyan revolution and the fall of the Gaddafi government. That moment when Gaddafi is captured and the Libyan, the new Libyan regime is taking over and nobody is quite sure whether they'll get it together, whether they'll keep it, keep control of it all. I think the grave that we've excavated captures that kind of moment of history. And what it will do is make us go back and reread and rethink a lot of those historical texts written around that time in a new way. We now have very concrete material evidence of the circumstances of the death and burial of Richard III. It's only a little tiny bit of history, but we really can rewrite that bit of history in quite a big way. And it's a very critical bit of history. It's the end of the Plantagenets, the rise of the Tudors. And it's a bit of history that captures people's imagination. What happens to the remains now? What do you think should be their next step? Actually, from our point of view, it's very straightforward. In order to excavate human remains, especially human remains in a, a, a Christian burial context, which of course these were because they were in a, in a church, we have to have a license to do that from the Ministry of Justice. And our license, which we got before the excavation started, allowed us to dig up to six human remains, six sets of human remains, six graves. And the um, provisions of the license say that if we were to find Richard III, then he would be reburied in Leicester Cathedral or some other equally suitable Christian place in Leicester. So from our point of view, Leicester Cathedral, which is a stone's throw away from the actual grave, is the absolutely appropriate final resting place for Richard III. And finally, what does the discovery mean to you on a personal level? At the moment, it's, it's kind of turned our lives upside down. And over the past five months, as you can imagine, we've had a huge amount of work to do, not, not only I myself, but also my colleagues, Joe Appleby, Richard Buckley, um, Turi King and Kevin Schurer, who've all been working on the investigations. Um, I'm, I'm not an archaeologist or historian who works directly in this period, but obviously I've been very involved with the project and doing lots of exciting logistics things. Do you know how difficult it is to find a place for a dead king to spend his Christmas vacation? That was amusing, but we've got through that one, and that's great. And, of course... He's being kept at the university while we continue our research in secure accommodation. But again, all of these kinds of logistic things take time to arrange. And of course, for us, we're doing all of this on top of our day job of teaching students, marking exams, you know, doing all the other stuff that we have to do as university teachers and lecturers and researchers. It's great. It's fun. 
I I feel so privileged to have been a part of this project and I'm so pleased that it's also brought us into contact with a very wide range of specialists across the university and beyond because many, many people beyond archaeology have helped us with this project. Our colleagues in engineering, in physics, in medical sciences have all been just fantastic and hugely supportive. But this is really so much a team effort. And I think as a team, it's brought us closer together. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. And that was Lynn Foxhall. You're listening to a History Extra Richard III podcast special. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find us in all good news agents and on subscription. And we also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. Now, our Google Play and Kindle Fire editions are currently only available in the UK, but they should be rolled out to other countries soon. You can find details of all of this and everything else we're doing at historyextra.com. And we'd love to know what you think about this podcast, and as such, we've put together a special survey for our podcast listeners. You can find it at historypodcast.questionpro.com. And as an added inducement, we're offering an iPad mini for one lucky respondent. Unfortunately, that prize is only available to UK residents, but we would still really love to hear your views wherever you're based. The address again for that online survey is historypodcast.questionpro.com. So, back to Richard III. Now, as anyone who caught the Channel 4 documentary on Monday night will know, that the Richard III Society have been closely involved with the archaeological dig. Now, Matt, you've been talking to someone from the Society. Who was that and what did you want to find out from him? Yes, Dr Phil Stone is chairman of the Society and I was interested to know what their involvement had been and what he now felt about the king in the light of some of the evidence that was unearthed. Excellent. So let's see what he had to say. How have the last couple of days been for you? Quite exhilarating. Going up to Leicester Monday morning and getting the wonderful news that the skeleton, or basically that the remains are confirmed to be Richard III, and most of us, uh, we're beginning to think they must be by all the circumstantial evidence. But to get that wonderful result actually announced 
that was really quite something. And then, of course, immediately afterwards, I learned the meaning of the words media circus. Hmm. Uh, every time you, anyone turned around, there was another camera or a microphone waiting for you. But this all part of it. I, as I say, it became exhilarating. And then yesterday, we had our own press conference in London when we presented the facial reconstruction. And that, too, was another quite marvellous experience. It was tiring, of course, all these things are. Mm. But uh, it's all worthwhile. You know, the, uh, as far as we're concerned, you know, Richard deserves everything we can uh, do for him. So heading back to the start of the project, what first led to you uh, digging at that site? Ah, uh, well... Many, many years ago, my predecessor as chairman, or predecessor but one, somebody said to him, why don't we dig up that car park? Because people have had a pretty fair idea that that's where the Greyfriars might be. Um, after all, the name of one of the roads next to it gives it away. Um, but at that time, when in, um, inquiries were made, the city council were far too keen on keeping their car park rather than looking for a dead king, well, fair enough, that's 30 years ago. Things have changed. Uh, and three or four years ago, Philippa Langley, one of our members, started putting together this project, and then she hawked it around various people uh, with a plan, because she, what she wants to do, and I think she may well get away with it now, is write a, a screenplay on the real Richard III, and she, so she, she, she went around and eventually she came pitched up at the university and the city council and gave them this account of how we really ought to be looking for the remains of Richard III and the Greyfriars because other people had done work to locate the possible uh, site of the Greyfriars at the monastery where we knew Richard had been buried. And eventually... The city council said, yes, okay, let's, let's, let's give it a go. And also the university came on board, as Richard Buckley has told us. Um, he thought it was, uh, first of all, he thought it was all nonsense, but uh, she was, he was persuaded by Philippa and eventually you know, they broke the ground in August of last year. And to his amazement, they found Richard. And uh, I think he's uh, rather pleased that he did take up the challenge. Yes, of course. I, the, the site of the Greyfriars is sort of known because it appears on maps of the, uh, well, the medieval period and, and later on. And eventually, there's quite a good map of it of the 18th century. And if you merge that with a modern map of Leicester City, you get more or less where the uh, site is today and a lot of work was done on that 2011 they we did ground penetrating radar to check and we got some anomalies that suggested we might be in the right place but it was i think too there was just a touch of luck that uh, that first day they hit the right site because as we've been told greyfriars and other monasteries or whilst they're often on a similar pattern, they don't always fit that pattern, but this one did. Mm. And you found the remains within the first digging uh, kind of session. Is, is, is that the case? I, under, I wasn't there, I, but um, yes, talking uh, over with Philippa and with other people. Yes, the very first uh, breaking of the ground and digging down, they came across uh, a leg bone. And then uh, after a little while, they dug around and found the other leg bone, which rather gave them a, possib a possible th thought that maybe we have a burial, uh, or, you know, a full burial, uh, rather than just a few bits and pieces. Uh, but I think they then took several days in the actual clearing to um, reveal the, uh, the skeleton, which they then obviously took their time in actually getting out of the ground. Of course. So how did you feel when they discovered the skeleton? Did you allow yourself to think that it could be Richard? Well, one hoped you know, they had worked out that it was uh, in front of the altar of the Greyfriars Church, which is where we know Richard would have been buried, place of honour for somebody of his uh, stature. Um, 
by which I mean his legal stature rather than his physical stature, I no doubt will come to that anon. Yes, Philippa rang me one evening and said, are you sitting down? I said, yes. And she said, are you sure you're sitting down? <laughs> uh, yes. Wondering what on earth was about to come. She said, well, we found him. And then they, she described... I was, then, I was then sworn to absolute secrecy because at that time um, no, but nothing was being given out. But she knew I was also about to disappear on holiday next day, so she thought it reasonable that I'd be given some idea before I went. So I when was this? What kind of month are we talking? Oh, this is August, September of last year. Okay. Uh, and then um, whilst I was actually away, they broke the news in their... Um, press conference and of course all hell broke loose. So what do you think we can learn about Richard's life and his death from the discovery? Well obviously the uh, scientific results from the remains are going to tell us things like his age although we know what that was supposed to be but that's confirmed Uh, and aspects of his diet, which you would expect to be very good because he was a king, and so on. Um, interestingly enough, we're going to, we're now, we're now going to see just what a soldier he must have been, because you know, we've got this curvature of the spine, this scoliosis, yet we know he was a doughty, valiant warrior, and one can only think, well, you know, this must have been um, particularly difficult. Well, no, I, that's probably unfair. It must have been an added um, disadvantage. I'd love to know what his armourer thought when he was trying to uh, produce armour, because armour of that period would be custom-made, especially for somebody of his quality. Um, yeah, there must have been a certain amount of uh, <laughs> knocking that about to make it fit. Um about his death, well, of course, anyone who's seen the pictures of those dreadful wounds to the back of his skull will know that uh, he probably had a, a somewhat painful and bloody death. I, part of the back of his skull was sheared off, presumably with something like a halberd, one of these great long pole axe type things. Um, and he, that death would probably have followed very, very quickly, because if nothing else, the bleeding from the, the skull wound, but also it exposed his brain and uh, whatever. I don't think he uh, would have lasted terribly long. And there were other wounds, both of which uh, are, were described as being fatal. Some of the lesser wounds may have been inflicted after he was dead, but... Uh, we're not entirely sure of that. You know, one knows that that sort of thing went on. I, there are other things that suggest that um, once he was dead, there was a, a you know, the sort of um, humiliation sort of thing where you try and disfigure the corpse. But we, there are no wounds to speak of on the face, which rather suggests that somebody said, leave his face alone because it must be made obvious that this is him. So when he goes on display, nobody has any doubt that Richard III is dead. You touched there on the curvature of the spine, which is obviously a fairly major aspect of the body as it was found. Yes. How did, I mean, how did you feel when you saw the fact the spine was in fact curved? I had a number of different feelings. First of all, I was surprised that the degree of curvature... I wasn't totally surprised that there was a curvature at all. Um, We are told in the contemporary accounts that one shoulder was possibly higher than the other, Uh, but at at times the accounts differ as to which, so that's always confusing. Uh, So I say I wasn't entirely surprised that there was a curve. I was staggered the first time I saw the skeleton being revealed, I was lucky enough to get a chance to see that Channel 4 program uh, whilst it was still in its rough state. And that was the first time I actually saw the curvature, although I'd had it described to me. And I was surprised at just how curved it was. 
But I was also delighted to learn that it wasn't that it was a scoliosis and not what I, as a medic, would call a kyphosis, which is the one that it gets rather crudely referred to as a humpback, mm. and uh, which of course is the Shakespearean uh, picture of Richard. I know there are people out there that do not like the use of the word, and I fully understand it because I don't like it myself, and one tries to avoid it. Mm. So uh, I am afraid I rather tend to duck out and call it the H word. But uh, no, this had a scoliosis, but then so what? A lot of people have scoliosis. I see, I'm a, I'm a radiologist by profession, I'm semi-retired, but you know, I, I see people with curved backs on in my x-rays right, two or three times a week, sometimes more. Uh, one of the most famous people alive today with a scoliosis, of course, is the fastest man alive today, Usain Bolt. Uh, it's not a problem, you know, it's a, it's a condition, it's not a disability. But you know, we know that Shakespeare and others made Richard out to have all these nasty deformities. Um, but then, in those days, a deformed body was the outward sign of a deformed mind, and it was necessary to blacken Richard's character as much as possible. Mm. So, I mean, what would you say to people that say, look, he does have a curved back. Does this not mean that all the other things that were said about him could also be true? That some of that propaganda might, in fact, be the truth? Well, the other description of his skeleton is the wizard arm. Uh, the uh, the scene in the tower in the play when Richard accuses um, Elizabeth Woodville, the Queen, and... Uh, Hastings of being in league and uh, witchcraft and he has a withered arm. Well, I assure you, I've now seen the skeleton for real. I saw the, the bones as they were very nicely displayed on Monday and uh, there's no sign of a withered arm. Both arms are the same. So uh, it's all very well suggesting that uh, just because the one uh, is deformed, the other follows. I... It is not so in this case. So, um, I we get all this business, you know, sent into this breathing world, yet scarce made up. I assure you that, apart from the slight curve of it, or the slight the, the curves of the spine, it's as perfectly made skeleton as you would ever hope to see. Mm. His feet are missing, but that's due to uh, messing about with the grave at one time or other in the past. Okay, um, and moving on, I suppose to the face. We saw that reconstruction on Tuesday yes. of of his head. Um, our art editor was wondering: Is there a portrait now that you've seen that reconstruction that you think shows Richard the best? That is the most accurate based on the new evidence. When I first looked at that reconstruction, which again I was able to see before the rest of you. Um, I looked at it and I thought, I'm not sure. Then I thought about the various portraits that are around. The one in the Society of Antiquities itself is the one that we as a society tend to use most, thanks to the Society of Antiquities. Um, there are touches of all the portraits in the facial reconstruction. But one has to remember that even the oldest of the portraits, the society one that we I just mentioned, that was painted 30 years after Richard's death. The, one, the most famous one, the one in the National Portrait Gallery with that red and gold background, that was painted 100 years after his death. I, copies tend to be copies of copies of copies. Um, so all of these things get corrupt. And if you see some of the portraits... Uh, one in particular is in King's College, Cambridge. These bear absolutely no resemblance to any of the others that have been produced. Uh, so it's very difficult to say. Um, I understand that uh, Professor Wilkinson and Janice Aitken, who produced the re uh, reconstruction that we saw yesterday, uh, did it blind. They had no reference to the portraits because they didn't know it was Richard they were working on. They were just presented with a medieval skull. Please turn this into a, a face. And so uh, 
you can't say that um, that facial reconstruction doesn't reveal the real Richard just because okay. it doesn't look like the portraits. Mm. I, I mean, fortunately, it's, it, I, uh, you can look at this two ways, but I consider that the fact that it doesn't closely resemble any of the portraits does prove that it wasn't, it wasn't made with the portraits in mind. I, there's an, there's, there, as I say, there's enough. If you put them all together in a line, which you can't because they're all in different places and the head's no longer around because it's in a box under our dining table, um, the, uh, there, there is enough that you can pick up as you go along, all in that uh, facial reconstruction. I'm happy that we are now looking at the real face of Richard III. Okay, fantastic. Um, is there anything about Richard that you've changed your opinion about or, or have had to reconsider in the light of the discovery? Only the fact that we've, <laughs> we've taught all along that he didn't have a curved spine. Uh, now we know he did. Um, you know, the, you know, the suggestions were all purely Tudor propaganda. Um, no, at the moment, I don't think the fact that we've uh, found the king and his remains makes any difference to what one can actually say about his lifetimes or, uh, or whatever. What I'm hoping is that the publicity that this is producing, and if you've looked at the papers or online at all in the last couple of days, you'll see that Richard III uh, has uh, remarkably hit the, uh, hit the, the, the press, the media. Um, I'm hoping that the publicity that's been engendered by this will cause people to start thinking about Richard, not to follow slavishly the Tudor propaganda, but to start looking... I want to open up the debate again and get people thinking about Richard, perhaps taking time to look at the, the facts. Put aside Shakespeare's play, great play that it is, but it isn't history. I, Shakespeare must have known he was twisting the facts in various ways um, anyway, to make great play, but... Uh, I, if people will start looking at the primary sources or, and reading around the subject and perhaps start to think that perhaps all is not as black as it's painted. And it's dreadful saying, I know, but uh, if we can start doing that, in time, we're going to get there. People are going to realise that maybe we're not talking about a nasty piece of work, a child killer and desperate murder who <laughs> waded in blood to take the throne. That's an interesting point, actually, because in terms of how this develops in the future, we still don't know for definite, obviously, um, what his character was like. This discovery doesn't really help us with that, it's or just, does it? No, I don't think that, no, I don't think finding him is going to make any difference in that respect. One has to accept the, uh, in order to get an assessment of his character, one has to go back to the people who wrote at the time he was alive. And there you get all sorts of accounts, mostly uh, to the, the effect that he, A, he was a good king, B, he had his people at heart, um, as we've heard, he instituted the bail system. He instituted a, the equivalent of a free press. He went for as much open government as possible in those times. He didn't exhort vast amounts of money from the people or I expect them to pay great amounts of largesse. He was uh, very temperate in that respect. I, I accept that there's a good possibility that he was a bit of a prude, which must have put him into trouble with his brothers. But uh, you know, Edward IV was a, known as a great womanizer. He was able to charm money out of the, the ladies without any trouble at all. But uh, I mean, there's no evidence that Richard did that. But other, you know, people, uh, the, the Bishop of St. David, uh, and Asaph uh, says, you know, how he was great man for the sent, for, I mean, a fine prince sent for the wheel of us all. I, I paraphrase without having the actual 
quote in front of me. Um, and the people in York who um, then, the council then write in their, their book the day after, but they hear about Bosworth, you know, to the great heaviness of this city that we hear that Richard III has been slain. Um, you don't write that sort of thing when there's a possibility that the victor, Henry Tudor, is going to find out because he would then have turned very nasty against them. So, no, I, I think, uh, as I say, I don't think finding the, the remains makes any difference to our understanding of Richard III per se. For that, we have to look at the contemporary sources. But as I said earlier, I hope the fact that we have found him, apart from the fact that we can now give him a decent burial, uh, which he didn't get before, if we can be done with dignity and solemnity as it should be, and uh, he can have a recognized grave. Um, no, I, I, I'd like to think that all of this is going to encourage people to read the facts and not just uh, accept uh, Shakespeare. Okay, fantastic. Um, you touched there on his burial. Do you have any feelings about where and how he's buried? Well, the society all along has adopted a neutral stance. This is, uh, I, for one thing, we we never we were never consulted as to what we should say, uh, you know, what we we would say, and uh, which is possibly just as well because I have members who are quite determined that he should be buried in York. They say that that's where Richard wanted to be buried. Well, and there is actually no evidence of where Richard planned to be buried. I imagine that he he expected, had he lived, to eventually end up in Westminster Abbey alongside his wife. But uh, they say that he should be um, in York Minster, which is what he wanted. The only evidence for this is that you, um, Richard built a chantry there for priests to pray for the soul of his fa souls of his family. But then he built chantries in uh, Middleham, which is where he lived a lot of his young life, and um, at Barnard Castle in Durham. So I, why did he not want to be buried any, in either of those instead? I, a lot of places have been put forward. Fotheringhay, where his parents and one of the other brothers, Edmund, is buried, or uh, Windsor, where his eldest brother, Edward IV, is buried. Uh, common archaeological practice, as we were reminded on Monday, is if you dig up the remains of a known individual, and now we know that they've dug up Richard III, the practice, archaeological practice, and it was in the license granted by the Ministry of Justice the, to exhume um, is that you rebury in consecrated ground near to where the remains were found. And that, of course, is Leicester, Leicester Cathedral. It's within 50 yards of the grave. I have no problem with that. Um, Leicester have expressed a desire to have him and the city's looked after him for 500 years. They may not have known it, but they've done him no harm. More by luck than judgment, I understand, if you look at the position of that grave and the Victorian War, but a few, yeah, a few feet further over, and we'd have lost Richard altogether, but that's by the by. Um, I think Westminster Abbey is too full for put him, and I think the same possibly about York Minster, although I'm sure either would find room if it were granted, but it's not. It's going to be Leicester Cathedral, and that's fine by me. So what would you say to people who say the discovery's been overhyped? I don't know whether it's been overhyped. It certainly hasn't been overhyped by us. It's clearly um, someone has made it run. Um, on the other hand, one could also argue, you see, that you don't dig up a king who's been, whose grave has been lost for 500 years. Well, not quite 500 years. It was known for quite a while. But you don't dig up the remains of a king who's been lost for some time, especially a king as famous as Richard III. You don't do that every day. Mm. And so, clearly, it's interesting, as you say, whether it's been overhyped. It's certainly touched the public imagination. And, uh, 
I people have mentioned it to me, but whether that's because they know of my interest, I I've had letters and uh, already had several letters and emails saying how wonderful this whole thing is. So you only have to look in today's papers and yesterday's. Yet there's a lot about it, but I suspect by the end of the next couple of weeks, it'll it'll be not only will it be old news, it'll be non-news. I mean, that's the way things go. Fantastic. And finally, what does the discovery mean to you, I suppose? This is another very good question. I'm not entirely sure I can answer. It's a wonderful event. <laughs> one of the things one could say is, what does it mean to me? Is a, a lot of bloody hard work. Um, but, but it's all worth it. No, it's... In, to some extent, I think it justifies our existence. We, especially if, as I said earlier, we can now get people to think again. If we can get justice done for Richard, see fair play. You know the old the old English thing. You know the the love of the underdog. If we can get that going, then I will th- feel that we've done a great deal of good for history. I, history should be written correctly, not just by the victor, but as somebody greater than me pointed out, truth is more important than lies, and that's what I want to see done. That was Phil Stone. Now, if your appetite for Richard III has not yet been satisfied, then do head to our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find the latest news, expert views and image galleries all about this story. And we'll also be investigating further in the March issue of BBC History magazine. You'll have to wait a couple of weeks for that because that's not out until the end of the month, but you can still get hold of our February issue, which is full of great features on topics such as Britain's most important battles, medieval royalty, Britain's first war in Afghanistan and Hitler's philosopher allies. You can find that in all good news agents and digitally. And that's about all for this episode. Why not tell us what you thought by getting in touch on email, podcast at historyextra.com, Twitter at historyextra, or Facebook forward slash historyextra. And as I mentioned earlier, we've got a podcast survey open at the moment, and you'll find that at historypodcast.questionpro.com. Next week, we'll be talking about Georgian bankers and a reconstructed Bronze Age boat. Do join us for that. The History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. 